But just before we come to this sermon, let's bow our heads in quiet contemplation. Father, still our hearts and help us to focus. Father, we pray that tonight you would speak through me and through these words and let your goals be known. Father, I pray through tonight that you would be glorified and that we would come to know you as a triune God, a God that exists in Trinity. Amen. I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the term Trinity. Maybe you're like the little girl who I teach in Forged. When I ask the group, does anyone know about Trinity? Her eyes lit up. She knew the answer. And with enthusiasm and confidence, she said, yes, I know Trinity. She was here last week. And as Christians, I think we can often take the fact that God exists in Trinity as a given without giving too much thought to it. I certainly, growing up as a Christian in that culture, family, and church, was steeped with the idea of Trinity. We reference, in our, we reference it in our baptism, our literacy, our <laughs> uh, and prayers. And I just accepted the idea. God is three, and God is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I never really wrestled with the idea to gain a deeper understanding, and I never really articulated how it made sense. That was until I went to university in England. I went to a wonderful city called Bradford, known for its multiculturalism and its curry. Um, and I vividly remember a friend who was of Muslim faith uh, stating to me in a very confident way that I believed in three gods, not one. And that was why the Christian faith was void, wasn't worth looking into. And while I did my best to try to explain to him, no, 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 it's three and one, it's not three, it's definitely one, and you know, I think I left him more confused, uh, and probably more, myself more confused by the end of the conversation. Um, and it was clear to me after that conversation that I needed to go away and do a bit of reading. So tonight, uh, Marty asked me to come and fill in for him while he's in America, and he said, pick whatever you want. Um, and maybe overly ambitiously, I thought, well, do you know what? I've, I've thought about that before. Maybe let's go with that. So um, for our one-off topic, we're going to be looking at the Trinity. Um, uh, and this is hopefully to equip us not only to be able to explain it to others and people um, who maybe haven't come, across, come across it before, but also for us to gain a greater understanding of our God and bring us a little bit closer to him and our relationship with him. And of course, in the true Presbyterian way, I've got three points. So, firstly, we're going to look at the Bible, and we're going to see where we get our basis for believing in the Trinity. Then, we're going to look at some of the dangers using, of using analogies, where the pitfalls might be with that. And finally, I'm going to ask the question, well, why does this matter to us? You know, going out tomorrow into our workplaces, why does this matter? Well, firstly, then, let's look at the Bible. Um, and you might be surprised to know the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. Um, Trinity means uh, triune, or sorry, triunity. 
uh, or three in oneness. And this idea is taught in many places throughout the Bible. Initially in the Old Testament, there are small indications or clues of the Trinity. And then with the coming of Jesus, we, see the, we get the complete picture of God in his triune nature. And triune uh, is just a fancy term for meaning that God exists in Trinity. And I might use that a wee bit through the sermon. So hopefully you can stay with me as we jump around the Bible. Um, and if you could start off by turning your Bibles to page three, we're looking at Genesis one, one to two, and then we're also gonna look at verse 26. And it is behind me, but uh, it looked bigger on my, my computer at home. <laughs> so hopefully you can read that, but if you turn in the church pew Bibles, you'll be okay. So Genesis one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The Bible opens with God creating the world. God is introducing himself by revealing his nature to his people. Right at the beginning of creation story, before anything has been created, God exists. Before he creates the heavens, God exists. Before he creates the world, God exists. God is creator, not created. And what we can take from this is that to be God means to be the creator and not be a created being. In this passage, God also reveals his triune nature. God the Father speaks creation into existence through the Son and the operation of the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are involved in the creation of the world. Now we'll explore how the Son comes into this when we look at John 1. But we can clearly see that the Spirit of God has been named and presented alongside God the Father as a unique person and therefore having a distinct role in creation. And if you look on over onto page four at verse 26, we see this, verse 26. Then, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, over all the creatures moving along the ground. So a number of questions come up after reading verse 26. Who is God talking to? Who is this us that, is the, that man is made in the image of? <clears throat> Some have suggested that God is using, the plural, uh, using a plural here to present his majesty, much like the Queen of England. For example, the famous line from Queen Victoria, we are not amused, using the plural when it means just the one. However, there are no examples in the Old Testament Hebrew where kings use a plural, a plural pronoun to suggest majesty, meaning that the use of the royal plural was not in the culture of the time that Genesis was written into. Genesis was written into. This idea then has no evidence really to support it. Another suggestion is that God could be talking to angels and other heavenly beings. But angels were not involved in the creation nor was man made in the image of angels. The best explanation, and the one almost universally agreed upon, is that the plurality 
is an indication of the plurality of God. So we're going to move on into the New Testament. So if you could turn with me to John 1, verses 1 to 5, and that's on page 1063. Starting at verse 1 then. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing, has be, nothing that has been made. Sorry. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. The word was with God, and the word was God. But who's the word? If we look on to verse 14, John reveals it. Starting at verse 14 then. The word became flesh and made his dwelling place among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. In other words, God became man. Or the Sunday school answer, Jesus, God the Son. So at the beginning of the book, John lays out who Jesus is. Jesus was there in the beginning. He was the word that God spoke to bring about creation. He was with God and he was God. A creature, sorry, a creator, not a creature. John clearly places God the Son alongside God the Father, fully God with all authority, power, authority and the power of God and yet distinct. Okay, and we look on to Matthew. Matthew gives an account of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist and here we can see all three persons of the Trinity. So Matthew 3 verses 13 to 17 and that's on page 967. I'll give you a second to flick there. And starting at verse 13 then. Then Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up from the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Here we have a clear moment where all three members of the Trinity are performing three distinct activities. God the Father is speaking from heaven. God the Son is being baptized and being spoken to by God. And God the Holy Spirit is descending from heaven to empower Jesus at the start of his ministry. The moment shows very clearly that there are three distinct persons of God which can all act independently of each other, fulfilling different roles, but completely and perfectly united in their purpose and goal. Okay, so we've seen the plurality of God, we've accepted that, and we see that each person of the Trinity is a distinct person, and we agree that each of these distinct persons are fully God. So my Muslim friend was right. 
There are three gods. Well, no. The Bible's very clear with this. And so I'm going to get you to flick to one more place in the Bible, but I promise this is the last one. So if you can turn with me to Isaiah 45, verses 5 to 6, and that's on page 731. I'll give you a second to get there. So starting at verse 5. I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you through you, though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of the setting, men may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no ambiguity. There is only one God. And in some ways, the doctrine of Trinity is a mystery that we will never be able to fully understand. However, God has revealed some of this mystery uh, to us through the Bible. And we can take from what we've read in the Bible from those passages um, and many more and state three truths about Trinity. And these will help shape our understanding. So my three truths, and you can read those hopefully. Um, number one, God is three distinct persons. Number two, each person is fully God. And number three, there is only one God. Okay, and we're going to use these to help us navigate some analogies. So the second point, we finished our first point. We've seen the biblical uh, basis for Trinity. Moving into the second point, the dangers of analogies. I've titled this the dangers of analogies as it can be tempting to use analogies when we're explaining the Trinity because it is an incredibly hard thing to get our heads around. It doesn't tangibly exist in our world. A part of the Trinity is hidden in the mystery of God but when we use analogies, what we can do is we can actually accidentally deny God's nature and truths about him. So, water is my first analogy. And here we have it, okay? So, analogy that can be used is water. When you freeze water, it becomes ice or a solid. When you leave it at room temperature, it's a liquid. And if you put it over the stove or you put it in the kettle, it, you can boil it and it becomes steam or a gas. All three states are distinct from each other, and yet all three are the same water. But there's a problem. This analogy, in this analogy, all three states cannot exist simultaneously. Water is either a solid, a liquid, or a gas. And if we take this back to the Trinity, what we're actually saying is that instead of having three distinct persons of God, God just appears either as Father, either as Son, either as Holy Spirit. And actually, this is a heresy called modalism, which is a fancy word. He's appearing in different modes, and we put an ism on the end. It sounds smart. But modalism, okay? So that's the, uh, the, the heresy there. And we go back to our three uh, biblical truths, and it denies our first one. And you can see that with the X. So God is three distinct persons, in this analogy, we've denied that because actually what we're saying is he can never, he's, he's appearing um, rather than existing in these, in these forms. So moving on, so not water, we decided that doesn't work. What about the sun? And what I mean by this is S-U-N rather than S-O-N to avoid some confusions. Um, God the Father is the sun, God the Son is the light, and the Holy Spirit is the heat. We have three distinct persons that all exist simultaneously so we've, we've moved on from that. 
um, and they all have different roles, but they're all connected at the same time. But where this analogy falls short is that it denies the deity of God the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son produces light and heat. If we apply this to our Trinity, what we're saying is that God the Father creates God the Son and creates God the Holy Spirit. And that means that we deny that they are fully God. And as we saw in our second point, each person is fully God. So this analogy doesn't work. And this analogy is uh, known as the heresy of Arianism, uh, where God the Son and God the Spirit aren't fully God. Okay, well, we'll move on to a more popular uh, analogy, particularly on this wee island. So, one way of explaining the Trinity is to use the three-leaf clover or the shamrock analogy, which is attributed to our very own St. Pat, but actually there's very little evidence to say he ever actually used this uh, with the native Irish peoples. Um, in this analogy, we have the shamrock, uh, which is one leaf, but has three different parts. Each part represents one of the persons of God, and they all make up one God. The issue with this analogy is when we separate the shamrock out, if we pull off the three parts, uh, uh, not one part can be the full leaf. Each segment is only part of the leaf. And we take this to our understanding of Trinity. Uh, it denies our second point again. Each person must be fully God, not partially God. And this is a heresy known as partialism. Um, finally, we look at tritheism. Tritheism isn't actually an analogy, but it's worth mentioning because it can be a, we need to avoid it when explaining the Trinity. Tritheism is an attempt to explain how each person of the Trinity can be three distinct persons, yet fully God. And it lands at the conclusion that there must be three separate gods. Much like the pagan gods of Greece, three separate gods lead us down some troubling routes. It was not uncommon, uncommon in the myths of Greek mythology uh, for infighting um, between the gods, which is a terrifying concept, and, not, and there's not much hope or comfort in a god like that. Very few Christians actually believe in tritheism. tritheism uh, as we can clearly see, it denies the truth, uh, denies our third truth, that there is only one God. But it is the conclusion that my Muslim friend came to and was a real sticking point when we chatted about our faiths. So it's important to understand and know it. But why does this matter? Why does the doctrine of Trinity matter? So we spent some time this evening trying to unpack what it means and what it doesn't mean. Why is it really important? The doctrine of Trinity holds up the deity, sorry, two seconds, no, yep, all right. The doctrine of Trinity holds up the deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit, the second point in our three biblical truths. Each person is fully God. This is incredibly important for our atonement. If Christ is merely a created being and not fully God, how can he bear the wrath for all of our sins? Could any creature, no matter how good, really save us? This is also linked to our belief in being justified by faith alone by what Jesus has done for us. All we have to do is accept God's gift of salvation to be saved, and Jesus will account on our behalf. But if Jesus is not fully God, 
how could we trust him to save us? Can he really intercede on our behalf? Understanding the Trinity can also help us understand other key doctrines. For example, uh, I have mentioned that Jesus died on the cross to bear the wrath of God against our sins that we have committed. This doctrine is known as penal substitution, meaning the substitute Jesus has put in, been put in the place to take the penalty for our sins. Now, if Jesus is not fully God and merely a creature, there is an argument to be made that God is forcing a creature into a very unfair trial and punishment on behalf of some other creatures. However, when we fully understand the Trinity, sorry, not fully, when we understand the Trinity, as we can, we see that actually what God is saying, what is God is doing here is he's taking the punishment on himself as the person of Jesus who is fully God. God is also a relational God. God exists in Trinity, and that means that he has eternally existed within a relationship. Before creation, God had interpersonal relationships within the Trinity. If God was not triune, how could he have genuine personal relationships without having to rely on a creature to fulfill the other side of that relationship? We are able to have personal, deep, and loving relationships with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because they have existed in relationship. Our God is a relational God by his very nature. This also means that our earthly relationships, although flawed and marred by sin, are a small reflection on the perfect relationship of the Trinity, giving weight to the importance that we put on those relationships. So to draw this evening to a close, I'll leave you with this. How there can be three distinct persons and each person having the whole being of God in himself and yet one undivided God. Well, there are a few things we can know on earth and there are a few things we will not know until heaven. And it's actually good for us and our spiritual health to acknowledge that God is far greater than our comprehension. But the Bible doesn't ask us to believe in a contradiction. A contradiction would be the, the Bible saying that God is three and God is not three. No, the Bible teaches, teaches us that God is three persons that exist in perfect unity and plurality, each person fully and completely God. There is only one God. This is not a contradiction. Sorry, this is not a contradiction. This is something that we just cannot fully understand. I understand this has been brief, and you may have questions. If you want to come and chat to me at the end, uh, I'll be out the front. I'm more than happy to chat to you about this. But we had, like I said, time was limited uh, and I had to choose what to explore, but there's so much more here we could have explored. Um, but I hope that was helpful.